Hello, murder mystery and paranormal fans, and welcome to episode five of J.L. Delosier's The Photo Thief. My name's Jess, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. Previously on The Photo Thief. Brennan's suspicions about Aaron's death are confirmed when Pete finds lethal levels of a sedative in her bloodstream. And after reading Cassie's notes on those 80-year-old cold cases, murder victims who were all serial killers themselves, he finds one common factor, Leland Dolan, whom he confronts in the hospital. Brennan is concerned by the mob hitmen in the parking garage and through quick thinking and help from his little friend, the crow, he survives unscathed. Is it just me? Are those diary chapters getting creepier? There's still lots to uncover in this story. Chapter 29. Brandon shaved and dressed carefully for the day ahead. The meeting with the captain was bound to be cantankerous. No need to give her any unnecessary ammunition. He knotted his nicest tie, which meant the one without the stain, and cinched it tight. This was it. Game on. Time to decide whether to lay it all on the line or live to fight another day. Today's boxing match with his boss would help him choose. The rarely worn blazer draped stiffly around his shoulders, and its wool color made his neck itch. But he looked good, or decent at least, as long as he didn't try to button it. He stowed Aaron McConnell's case report, Cassie's files, and Elle's picture in an equally pristine leather attaché, a first anniversary gift from Julia, and drove to the office. Coffee in hand, he strolled through the precinct and was met by raised eyebrows and a high-pitched wolf whistle from across the room. Sexual harassment. They should know better. He slung the attaché onto his desk and booted up his computer. Detective Tan eyed his attire with open curiosity. What gives? Nothing. Brennan sipped from his steaming mug. Why? You haven't worn a blazer since the last inspection. Got a date after work? A date with a captain is more like it. She wants my report by ten, but I was hoping to get it done and over with so I can move on with my day. Have you seen her yet? He glanced across the room at the glass-enclosed office, which sat dark and empty. Nope. Brennan frowned. Captain Mattern had her faults, but laziness wasn't one of them. She was routinely the first to arrive and the last to leave. She's usually here by now. Did she call off? His coworker shrugged. How would I know? Maybe she's just running late. The radio said there was a big pileup on I-95 this morning. Her cell phone rang, and she turned her attention back to her desk. Figures. His shoulders tightened. How was he going to kill two hours? He finished his coffee while leisurely scrolling through yesterday's email, which took all of 20 minutes. With a click, he emailed the Captain Aaron McConnell's case report, then double-checked that the hard copy remained safely stowed in his attaché. He'd carried into the meeting and handed to her in full view of anyone who cared to watch through her glass office. Old school, yes, but at least it wouldn't conveniently disappear into the electronic ether like Pete's original autopsy report. The folder smelled faintly of fine leather. He slid it back into the attaché next to Father Pignotti's and closed the flap. The priest's gaping chest wound flashed through his mind. The snacks. 
He'd planned to search the precinct's long-term storage area for physical evidence. A bullet or casing would be nice, anything he could subject to modern forensics. On Monday, if he wasn't dead or fired, he'd be assigned a new investigation. He may not get another chance. Now was as good a time as any. He hung his blazer over the back of his chair, slung the attaché over his shoulder, and jogged the stairs to the basement. To his right, stragglers running late after their morning workouts rushed down the yellow hall from the locker room, which would now sit largely silent until the lunch hour or change of shift. With every whoosh of the locker room door, an acrid gust of body odor and chlorine wafted toward the stairwell, where it mingled with a faint mustiness from the hallway to his left. No one except the occasional historian or ghost hunter visited the stacks. With its iron-barred cells, filing cabinets, and a jumble of boxes sorted more or less by date, acquired a thick layer of dust. Spiders undisturbed for months at a time spun elaborate webs in the corners. The stone walls, slick with mold, retained a tinge of their original industrial green paint, and the low ceiling added to the overall sense of claustrophobia. Brennan flipped a switch. The overhead lights, retrofitted in the 1950s, flickered on one by one, illuminating the long corridor with their sickly yellow glow. He shuddered. Twenty years had passed since he'd last visited the stacks. He'd forgotten how bad it was. Even after half a century of disuse, a vein of misery marbled the crumbling stone and despair still filled the dank air. He ran his finger over the first cell's rusty lock and peered inside. The cells were more like tiny cages, designed at a time when Americans were shorter and thinner and prisoners were treated worse than circus animals. They lined both sides of a narrow passage barely wide enough for a single guard to patrol down the middle without being grabbed through the bars by desperate hands. In front of each cell door, a number stenciled on the floor in red paint marked the year. The countdown started at 1980. In the distance, the cages seemed to merge into one, and the light tapered like a tunnel. The optical illusion dampened what little enthusiasm he'd managed to muster. He had almost forty years of cells to pass. He glanced at his phone, hoping that time had magically passed and he had to bail for his meeting. Not even close. He sighed, squared his shoulders, and trudged into the stacks. Layers of grit and plaster from the deteriorating ceiling crunched underfoot. The subterranean air grew damp and cold, cold enough for him to see he was breathing far too fast. 1975. Bruce Springsteen's born to run. Nobody beats the boss. 1971. Led Zeppelin's stairway to heaven. He could use one of those right about now. 1968. Bang. He spun, crouched, and drew his gun. A shower of sparks and shattered glass rained from above. He pressed his ribs against the closest cell's icy bars and shielded his eyes with his forearm. The noise fizzled to a slow hiss. The sparks vanished. One of the feeble overhead lights faded to black. Brandon exhaled a cloud of breath and holstered his gun. He grabbed at the bars and pulled himself to his feet. Something soft brushed his fingers. He jerked his hand away. The cell door rattled and creaked. He stumbled out of reach. A spiderweb fanned in the draft. Jesus Christ, Dan, get a hold of yourself. His voice echoed down the hall. Hands on hips, he stared at the ceiling until his pulse returned to normal, grateful that the only cameras in the stacks were at its beginning and end. He'd put on quite a show. 
He resumed his slow passage to 1945. A subtle twinge in his shins implied the floor was sloping downward, penetrating deeper into the stacks. With each passing year, the bright light from the stairwell dimmed and the shadows grew bolder and more menacing. 1946. He stopped in front of what should have been cell number 1945, its red paint obscured by layers of grime. He scraped the sole of his shoe over the pockmarked cement, revealing the badly faded numbers. Finally. The cell door was slightly ajar and its keyhole lock filled with epoxy, a precaution put into place by administration after his unfortunate incident decades prior. He grabbed the heavy iron bars with both hands and pulled. The door shrieked, its rusty bearings forced into halting motion after years of lazing in the dark. It slid a few inches, jerked, and shuddered to a stop. A cloud of dust made his eyes water. Panting, he covered his nose and mouth with a crook of his elbow. After the air cleared, he squared his shoulders and yanked until his fingers ached, forcing a gap barely wide enough for him to slip through. Good enough. He peered through the bars and wondered if it had been worth the effort. The cell's back wall was lined floor to ceiling with six columns of stacked file boxes in various stages of decay. Those on the bottom had collapsed, the evidence contained within forever lost to history. The rest were coated with a thick layer of slime, a foul mixture of mold, rotting cardboard, and heaven knows what else. But at least they were labeled with a range of file numbers. He scrolled through the pictures he'd taken of Cassie's cold case files. The murders occurred in sequential months, June, July, August, and September, so the spread of file numbers wasn't obnoxiously broad. Should be easy enough. He rolled up his sleeves, tucked in his tie, and slid on a pair of nitrile gloves. He learned early and hard to always carry a pair in his back pocket in case of noxious slime and assorted bodily fluids. The glamorous life of a detective. A cursory inspection of the columns revealed his quest would not be so easy after all. Serial killers aside, the summer of 1945 must have been otherwise light on crime. According to the numbers scrawled on the box fronts, three of the case files, Ruth's, Father Pignotti's, and the Butcher's, rested in the collapsed, decomposing cartons at the bottom of column four. Retrieval would require an extra pair of hands, a hazmat suit, and a respirator. He doubted he'd find anything worth saving anyway. What a waste of time and anxiety. Only Artie's file remained. Brennan stretched onto his toes to pull two boxes off the top of column five. As he turned to set them on the ground, the lower box's cardboard bottom disintegrated, showering musty old papers and bits of evidence across the cell floor. A giant plume of dust and mold sprayed into the air. Coughing and with eyes streaming, he stumbled out the cell door, tripping over the scattered folders. A clump of threes skidded under the bars and came to a rest next to the tip of his dust-coated shoe. He picked up the top two and skimmed the pictures, hoping by some miracle one of them was Artie's. No such luck. The third slim file lay splayed open on the ground. Brennan swiped his sleeve across his gritty eyes and blinked. That face. He'd recognize that mugshot anywhere, even in black and white. He crouched for a closer look. The young man sported a swollen cheek, bloodied nose, and a familiar scowl. Three quarters of a century earlier, Leland Dolan's smooth face lacked its rugged handsomeness, but one thing remained unchanged, his fierce stare, capable of penetrating time and space to raise goose flesh on Brennan's forearms. 
He held the file to the dim light and turned the yellowed pages. For witnesses, the barroom brawl had been epic, with two intoxicated Irishmen beating each other senseless for reasons neither could later recall. But only one was left a bloody pulp, and it sure as hell wasn't Leland Dolan. Fortunately, his opponent, a young lad with the surname McConnell, survived. Both declined to press charges. Dolan spent the night in a cell sobering up and was released the next day on probation. The file was dated just one week before Artie's strangulation. Brennan shook his head. So the bad blood between Dolan and the McConnell mob family went back generations. Dolan must have been absolutely apoplectic when Aaron married into the clan. The McConnells likely considered it a win, much like when princesses were married off by their fathers to diplomatic rivals, uniting their kingdoms by blood. It worked for almost 19 years. But now that Aaron was dead, Leland Dolan had no reason to play nice. His phone blared an alarm, the noise bouncing off the stack's low ceiling. Twenty minutes until his meeting. He snapped photos of Dolan's file and waded through the pile of papers and miscellaneous evidence strewn around the cell floor, hoping something would catch his eye. Artie's case file, or what was left of it, was buried in there somewhere. It would take hours to sort through the mess, plus a new box to stash everything in. A job for another day. Something to look forward to. A third trip to the stacks. A loud clang, followed by the sound of a cell door rattling as it closed, reverberated through the windowless passage. Brennan, heart racing, dropped Dolan's file and squeezed through the narrow gap in the bars to the safety of the hall. Yes, the lock was filled with glue, rendering it inoperable. Did he trust that? Not for one sweet minute. Fists clenched, he stood in the hall and waited. Nothing. The stacks were as silent as Pete's morgue. He started the slow march back to the stairwell. The lights went out at 19.50. The sudden darkness eased Brennan in its icy, malevolent embrace. He froze in place, his raspy breath echoing in the silence and waited for his vision to adjust. A dim light glowed at the far end of the tunnel. Ghostly laughter drowned out the pounding of his heart. A tall black shadow partially blocked the light. The light flickered again, and the nebulous shadow disappeared, taking the laughter with it. Asshole! Brennan screamed. He took off in a full sprint, but soon screeched to a halt, overcome by vertigo. Damned funhouse effect. Uneven floor, low ceiling, darkness. He swayed and grabbed the nearest cell door for support. He'd have to feel his way door by door back to the stairwell. A faint clink sounded from within the cell. He yanked his hand off the bars. Plaster falling from the walls, that's all. Or maybe the ceiling. He stared into the darkness of the bleak cell. The darkness stared back. Perhaps the guards of old were onto something when they opted to walk in the middle of the passage, safely out of reach. He stepped away from the bars and fumbled to find his phone's flashlight app. The meager beam of light did little to pierce the suffocating darkness, but it did manage to illuminate the ground in front of his feet. He aimed it at the floor and resumed his slow trek toward the stairwell. In 1965, his phone blared, sending his pulse through the stratosphere. He jerked. The phone flew out of his grip and skidded into the shadows. It pinged off one of the iron bars before falling dark and silent. Shit, shit, shit. He dropped to his hands and knees and patted the ground in widening circles. Come on, baby, give me a sign. Proof of life, something, anything. Dear God, he was pleading with a cell phone. The phone vibrated, signaling the missed text. 
He followed the sound of the cell to his left. Nothing in front of the door. He gingerly slipped his hands between the bars and swept his fingers side to side. His pinky bumped against the phone's hard case. The screen was cracked, but the phone still worked. He tapped the icon and the flashlight app clicked back on. The thin beam of light landed on a pair of glowing red eyes. Shit, shit, shit again. Brennan scrambled off his knees and backed away. With a scurry and a squeak, the eyes disappeared. He exhaled, glanced at his phone, and gasped. Seven minutes. He had seven minutes until his meeting. He covered the next 15 years in record time and headed straight into the locker room. The mirror confirmed his suspicion. The situation was not good. Sweat stains marred his white button-down shirt. His dress shoes were caked with dirt, and he'd somehow managed to rip a hole in one pant leg. His tie tucked into his shirt had survived unscathed. He grabbed a bar of soap and went to work. Five minutes later, his shoes gleamed and his face, forearms, and hands were clean and dry. His jacket would cover the sweat marks. There wasn't much he could do about his filthy knees and pants. He'd emptied his locker the day he and Pete went for their walk by the river, but he checked anyway, hoping for a miracle. Nada. Of course not. He slammed the door. The locker next to his rattled, its door slightly ajar. Jim's. They used to swim together almost every day before Elle's cancer. Jim liked to look and smell good and always kept spare clothes and a complete line of hygiene products at the ready. They often joked about his expensive taste in cologne. Jim was about his height and weight. Maybe he'd have a pair of clean pants he could borrow. Brandon peeked around the row of metal lockers. The room was empty. Who was he kidding? He just wanted to know what was inside. Amber's missing jewelry would be a pleasant, if unlikely, surprise. He crooked his finger around the door's edge and gave a gentle tug. It creaked louder than a haunted mansion's gate. He winced and glanced over his shoulder. The room remained quiet and still. He wrenched the door wide. His face fell. Nothing. Jim's locker was empty. A faint musky odor was all that remained. He didn't have time to think about it. Brennan dashed up the stairs to his desk and shrugged his jacket over his shoulders. He pulled Aaron McConnell's file from his attaché and straightened his tie. He was ready with 30 seconds to spare. He squared his shoulders and turned toward the captain's office. It was dark and vacant. Detective Tan stared at his dirty torn trousers with morbid amusement. You lose a fight with a chihuahua? Funny. You're very funny, Tan. Where's the captain? She hasn't come in yet. Not that I've seen, anyhow. We were supposed to have a meeting at ten. She shrugged. Maybe she canceled it. Did you check your text? Of course I checked my text. Brennan scowled and walked toward the captain's glass-enclosed office. Shit. He forgot to check his text. He turned his back and casually pulled his phone from his pocket. The missed text he'd received while sprawled on all fours in the stacks remained unread. He tapped the cracked screen. Swim before lunch, we need to talk. Jim. Brennan furrowed his forehead and tried to glean the implication behind the words glowing on the screen. They hadn't swum together in months. Given the current state of their friendship, an olive branch, if that's indeed what this invitation represented, was unexpected. Suspicious, even. His fingers hesitated above the screen. The door to the precinct flew open. Captain Mattern, flushed and flustered, hurried in. Brennan quickly tapped a response. Meeting with a captain now, see you at eleven. Captain Mattern's eyes met his. 
her gaze flickered over his disheveled appearance. Her harried expression faded to an aloof mask. I'll be with you in five, detective. I have more important things to finish first. She brushed by him and strode into her office. I'll let you know when I'm ready. The door slammed. Brandon gritted his teeth and shoved his phone in his pocket. Yes, ma'am. He stomped back to his desk. This meeting was going to hell and it hadn't even started yet. Five minutes, my ass. He plopped in his chair. May as well get comfy. Somehow he knew he was in for a wait. Chapter 30 Five minutes turned into thirty and included three trips to the break room for bad coffee, two potty runs and one argument with a mail clerk. Brennan fumed as he watched Captain Mattern, her face once again drawn and tense, pace her office and yell into her cell. Finally, she slammed her phone on the desk, collapsed into her chair and waved him in. He entered without knocking. They considered each other from opposite sides of her expansive desk. She sipped her coffee from a metal thermos heavy enough to use as a weapon. It trembled ever so slightly in her grip. His eyes narrowed. Everything okay? She positioned the thermos carefully on a fancy glass coaster etched with the Philadelphia Police Department's official seal. No, but thank you for asking. Do you want to talk about it? No. Her gaze dropped to his torn pant leg. Do you? No. Excellent. We're on the same page, then. Do you have the McConnell report? I emailed it to you first thing this morning. I haven't had a chance to check. I brought a printed copy if you'd prefer. He dropped the attache strap from his shoulder. That might be best. I'll be in and out of the office today. So polite. The calm before the storm. Or maybe this was the storm. He pulled the file from the leather case and held it across the desk. Two manila folders, both stamped confidential in bold red letters, occupied the space between her keyboard and conference phone. The names typed on the tabs gave them away. Personnel files, his and Pete's. He opened his mouth. She snatched the folder from his hand and flipped through the pages, giving them a perfunctory look. I need time to review this. Come back in an hour. In the meantime, consider yourself relieved from this case. She tossed the file on top of the others. Ryan McConnell filed a restraining order against you. What? Why? You were at his hospital yesterday. It's not his hospital, it's Jefferson Hospital. He doesn't own the place, but yes, I was there, didn't see him. He saw you, says you threatened him. Bullshit. His goons paid me a visit, though. Did he mention that part? They delivered a nice pep talk in the parking deck. Several witnesses corroborate his story. The captain leaned back in her chair. Paid witnesses, I'm sure. Dispatch can back mine, as can hospital security cameras. I walked from the parking deck to Leland Dolan's room and back out again, period. It's his word against yours. Her civil tone never changed. They could have been discussing the weather. He flung the attache over his shoulder. Yeah, the word of a police detective with a clean record versus that of a mob-connected asshole surgeon with a dead wife and mistress. A monstrously wealthy high society mob-connected asshole surgeon, she sighed, as if suddenly weary of the whole thing. This is bigger than me, isn't it? This is bigger than both of us. She reached for Aaron McConnell's file. Go put on a clean pair of pants. You're embarrassing the department and me. Be back in an hour. We need to close this case for good. Trust me, you'll feel better when it's over. I know I will. Brennan texted Pete from the break room. 
We need to talk. He loitered, poured himself another cup of rancid coffee, changed his mind, and dumped it down the sink. He was already jittery. He didn't need an ulcer to boot. After ten minutes of silence, he gave up. No surprise, really. It was, what, about seven in the evening in Hawaii? Pete was probably shimming his hips at a luau. Jim was next. On my way. Sure, Brennan lacked the one thing necessary to swim in the precinct's pool, namely a pair of trunks. Shit, he didn't even have a clean pair of pants handy, which was embarrassing, as the captain had so graciously pointed out. But that didn't mean he and Jim couldn't have a heart-to-heart. -heart. He sincerely doubted Jim's invitation had anything to do with exercise. Brennan trudged down the steps to the basement locker room, expecting to see a speedo-clad Jim primping by his locker. The room was empty. The air, heavy with chlorine, grew warmer and thicker the closer he got to the heated pool. As he approached the swinging double doors to the pool area, his foot hit a slick spot. With a jolt, he skidded out of control, arms and legs flailing in the air. He hit the tile floor with a thud and a splash. His left hip bore the brunt of the fall. Groaning, he rolled onto his back and thought of Leland Dolan. The old man had broken a hip with his fall. Here's hoping youth and a few extra pounds spared him the same fate. He gingerly flexed his left knee and hip. No pain. He rolled onto his hands and knees. His palms slid on a thin layer of water and he scowled. The number one rule for using the department's pool was to clean up any tracked water. Okay, the true number one rule was not to pee in the pool, but that was a given. Either way, the janitors always left a mop propped inside the swinging doors to prevent this exact situation. The asshole responsible, whether too lazy or too rushed, was lucky Brennan hadn't broken his neck. Mumbling under his breath, he struggled to his feet, pushed the swinging doors open, and hobbled inside. The hum of the ancient filtration system mixed with the warm haze of chlorine made his head spin. The doors clapped shut behind him. A body floated face down in the pool. Jim! He limped to the edge and jumped in, releasing wisps of steam that curled languorously into the humid air. The water pushed against his thighs as he splashed and waded toward the middle of the pool. Jim bobbed in the turbulence, each ripple pushing him tantalizingly out of Brennan's reach. With a final lunge, he latched onto one arm, threw it over his shoulder, and hauled Jim to the shallow end. Grunting under Jim's weight, he heaved him over the pool's edge onto the hard tile, where he landed with a slap of a waterlogged towel. Overheated and exhausted, Brennan hoisted himself to kneel next to Jim. He flipped him onto his back and gasped. Jim's eyes and mouth were open, but he was still, deathly still. He pressed his fingers against Jim's neck. No pulse. He grabbed his cell from his pocket. Water pooled under the cracked screen. It flickered and died. A black rotary phone hung on the far wall. Circa World War II, the relic likely hadn't worked since the 1950s. It was worth a try. His bruised hips screamed as he hustled across the tile. His sopping clothes dripped a trail of chlorinated puddles behind him. The heavy bakelite receiver felt foreign in his hand. He held it to his ear. No dial tone. He stuck his finger in the rotary dial and spun it clockwise, hoping to connect to the precinct switchboard. Nothing. He slammed the receiver back in its cradle and rushed back to Jim, slipping and sliding on the water bombs he'd left in his wake. They were on their own. Jim was so screwed. Frantically debating his options, he pushed hard and fast on Jim's chest. With each forceful blow, water spurted from Jim's mouth and ran down his gray face to join the puddle forming beneath his limp body. This is useless. Brennan pushed anyway. 
squish, slurp. Jim's bare skin made obscene sucking noises as it contacted, then released the wet tile. Beads of sweat formed on Brandon's forehead and trickled into his chemically irritated eyes. The salt added to the burn. His vision clouded and his arms quivered with fatigue. Squish, slurp, laughter. Brandon's racing heart skipped a beat. There it was again, two voices in the hallway. Friend or foe, only one way to find out. Hey, man down, I need help in here. The laughter stopped. Squish, slurp. The swinging door burst open and Brandon braced for whatever came next. Detective Tan, trailed by a female uniformed officer he didn't recognize, rushed through. Tan turned to her friend. Go get help. She hurried to Jim's side and dropped to her knees. Who is he and what the hell happened? Jim Benino and I have no idea. I found him face down in the pool. A bead of sweat dripped off his forehead onto Jim's chest. Can you take over my arms or fried? How long have you been working on him? Tan nudged Brennan out of the way and began chest compressions. I don't know, five, ten minutes. But who knows how long he was floating before I found him. It couldn't have been that long. What time had he gotten that text? Brennan flashed back to the stacks. Some asshole had pranked him by turning off the lights. The text came through a few seconds later. He shook his head. It's a short trip from asshole to murderer. The text was now evidence. He shook his wet phone, hoping for a miracle. Nothing. Tan looked up from her compressions. Put it in a bag of rice, and next time don't drown it in a pool. I'm not planning on doing this again, I assure you. The black rotary phone rang, and rang, and rang. Dan gave Brandon a strange look. Were you expecting a call? No, I thought the damn thing was broken. I tried to call for help a few minutes ago and it didn't work then. Didn't even get a dial tone. The insistent ringing continued. Brandon limped across the slick tile and raised the receiver. Hello? Static crackled in his ear. Hello? Is anyone there? He strained to hear over the loud hum of the pool's filter. The pause in the static revealed a second sound. Someone's slow and steady breath. Brandon whispered into the receiver. Listen, you bastard. Whoever you are, I will find you. You hear me? Dan's officer friend ran back into the room carrying a hard-shelled case. Help is on the way. I brought the automatic defibrillator from the locker room. Tan eyed Jim's wet torso and the expanding puddle beneath him. What do you think? Should we risk shocking him? Her friend shrugged. Brennan slammed the receiver onto the wall and hobbled back to Jim's side. He smiled grimly. Your call. I've already had one shock for today. I'm not sure my old heart can handle another. Chapter 31 The eerie basement pool hosted an unprecedented crowd, including a dozen first responders, and an assortment of gawkers spouting quasi-legitimate reasons to leave their workstations and visit the locker room. They filled the hall and crammed themselves into the area around the rectangular pool's near end, their combined body heat turning the space into a giant wet sauna. Brennan stripped off his sopping tie and socks and wrung them into the pool. Drenched and miserable, he separated himself from the crowd to linger at the far end and observed the scene from a distance. The paramedics moved beyond his and Tan's basic attempt at resuscitation by placing an IV and inserting a breathing tube into Jim's lungs. Twenty minutes later, they radioed hospital command and their efforts ceased. 
One of the rescuers stood, stretched her back, and chatted briefly with Tan, who nodded. Tan duck-walked the slick tile's surface to give him an update. They called it. She eyed the tie and socks piled in a soggy mess at his feet. Said there was nothing more they could do. They tried their best. So did we. Brennan nodded and stared at the dilapidated pool's shimmering water, always in motion as if agitated by an invisible hand. A different motion, a strange undulation deep beneath the surface caught his eye. He squinted. Do you see that? He pointed to an area near the bottom of the deep end where tiny bubbles continuously rose to the surface, and a gentle bloop-bloop hinted at the presence of a filter along the far wall. They walked closer and crouched for a better look. A metal screen, similar to the strainer in an average kitchen sink, covered the filter. The pump's forceful suction had attracted a green piece of cloth, which now partially clogged the screen. Its free hem undulated like kelp in the tide. Tan frowned. It looks like a handkerchief. It is a handkerchief. Brennan's throat tightened and he jumped to his feet. A silk handkerchief, to be exact. And it doesn't belong to Jim. Four hours crawled by in spits and sputters of activity, separated by long stretches of tedium, the hurry-up-and-wait pace of childbirth and police investigations. Since the usual coroner was unavailable, thank you, Honolulu Pete, they first had to wait for his coverage to arrive and decide if Jim's death was accidental or suspicious. The coroner chose the latter. Then, since assigning a detective to investigate a death within their own precinct would be a conflict of interest, Captain Madden was forced to call in the state troopers and internal affairs. Brennan recited the facts until his voice grew hoarse, first to a brusque pair of troopers and next to a more genteel inspector, wearing expensive suede shoes he clearly didn't want to get wet. The troopers retrieved the handkerchief and confiscated Brennan's phone. He told them everything. Almost everything. Jim's open locker, the strange incident in the stacks. Jim's text, the water outside the pool's swinging double doors, the green handkerchief. He left out the details of their estranged friendship and only paused once when the troopers asked if he knew any reason why someone would want to kill Jim. He finally started something about Jim's propensity to drink hard and bet big on the ponies. The troopers seemed satisfied with that. The inspector did not. He wanted to tell them Jim stole from the dead and tempered with evidence for the mob. But something held him back, an inner voice warning him the time wasn't right. The inspector, an experienced detective in his own right, knew he was holding back. Brennan knew he knew. He saw it in the arch of the inspector's gray brows, heard it in the gentle persuasion of his voice when he asked, Are you sure there's nothing more you'd like to share, detective? Brennan shook his head, not trusting himself to speak. It didn't help that Tan, during her own interrogation, kept pointing at Brennan's torn clothing, undoubtedly regaling them with details of his dirty and disheveled appearance after his mishap in the stacks. And then there was the captain. She hovered in the background near the swinging double doors, now propped open to release the oppressive heat. She exchanged a few words with the inspector as he was leaving and watched as Jim's body was loaded onto a stretcher and wheeled from the room. She turned on her heel and left with a corner. The locker room was a buzz which helped Brennan secure a borrowed pair of sweatpants and a clean sweatshirt. He parried questions while changing and slogged up the stairs to his desk. His blazer, dry and in pristine condition, hung over his chair, taunting him. 
He was tempted to throw it over his sweats and call it a day. Keep it classy on the drive home. At least it would hide his gun holster. Captain Mattern thwarted his plans. Any day now, detective. She turned her back and strode to her office without waiting to see if he would follow. Because of course he would. Brennan clenched his jaw and stalked through the open door. Ass whipping, part due. Except now he was sore, exhausted, and not in the mood. Oh, and thanks to Detective Tan, a murder suspect too. Nice. She sat in her chair and steepled her fingers. Your report's too vague. You labeled Aaron McConnell's death as suspicious but inconclusive, yet you gave no clear evidence to support a homicide versus an accident. I'm not stupid, detective. I see what you're trying to do. Your report is one giant hedge designed to keep the case open and in limbo. I told you before, this case needs to close. I'm fine, thank you for asking. No craziness at all. Just business as usual here in the precinct. She stared coolly at his face. His weariness dissolved in a surge of anger. You asked me to wrap this up in a pretty little bow, but Erin McConnell deserves better and so does her daughter. I wrote the truth without speculation. All I asked was for you to finish it by Friday, which is today. I didn't think I needed to be more specific. You want specifics? How's this? Ryan McConnell drugged his wealthy wife and a mob accomplice, pushed her down the stairs. Now they've set their sights on Leland Dolan, who also conveniently fell down the stairs, except the tough old bird survived. You talked to him yesterday at the hospital. Don't you think he would have told you if someone pushed him down the stairs? I asked him point blank. He denied it, but he's hiding something. I could feel it. He thinks he's sheltering Cassie. Said he'd deal with it his way, whatever that means. Meanwhile, mobster Beck is covering his baby brother's tracks by having Jim tamper with the evidence and using his goons to intimidate me and Pete into playing nice. Pete folded. I'm trying to preserve my life while not compromising what's left of my integrity. But there's still one piece of this puzzle I can't figure out. You. Why did you visit Dolan Mansion in July? Her face flashed with emotion and her eyes widened. The instinctive response was there and gone before Brennan could accurately assess its source. It may have been fear. The captain's voice was calm and steady. I've never been to Dolan Mansion. Cassie McConnell says otherwise. Did you know she's a super recognizer? Probably not, or you wouldn't have gone. She never forgets a face. I have never been to Dolan Mansion. Captain Mannard echoed her prior words. Dr. McConnell's told me about his daughter. Apparently, she's heavily medicated and mentally ill, and in this case, totally wrong. She rose from her chair and brushed by him to stand with her back to the glass wall. Choose your next words carefully, detective. I don't know where you're going with this, but I assure you it's a game you will not win and can't afford to lose. Her gaze traveled deliberately from his face to the wall behind her desk. Brennan followed her line of sight. A clock ticked high on the wall. The captain folded her arms across her chest. I met with Jim Bonino earlier this morning. That's why I was late. He said you'd try to set him up. Said you acquired a lot of debt, unpaid hospital bills from your daughter's illness, and that your friend the coroner, Pete Ecker, has been stealing jewelry and watches from the dead. You've been fencing the items and splitting the profits. Interesting that he could afford a long, expensive trip to Hawaii on a public servant's salary. Also interesting that Jim is now dead and you were the one to find him. You've got to be kidding me. The end game was unfolding. He knew this was coming, but it was chilling nonetheless. 
If anyone's getting set up here, it's me. You know as well as I do, by the time a corpse lands in Pete's morgue, it's already been stripped of its personal effects. Besides, there's got to be security camera footage of Jim somewhere in this building. Detective Tan knows I was at my desk. Detective Tan reported there was an hour's gap during which you left your desk and returned from the basement a sweaty, dirty mess like you'd been involved in a fight. I was crawling around in the stacks. Hadn't he told Tan that? The entire day was a blur of mishap and mayhem. I told Internal Affairs, I'm sure of it. He hadn't told them enough. The voice in his head advising discretion with the inspector had been wrong, dead wrong. Now if he revised his statement to include Jim's connection to the mob, it would look like Brennan was covering his tracks. And he was. Captain Mattern stepped around Brennan in turn so they were facing each other and both visible through the glass. I spoke with the inspector. He felt you weren't completely forthcoming. She took a deep breath. You've left me no choice. You're hereby placed on an administrative leave of absence pending the investigation of Jim Benino's death. You're not to set foot inside this building until I say so. Is that clear, Detective Brennan? Shocked into silence, he stared at her face, hoping to see a flicker or glimmer of something besides grim determination. Crystal, ma'am. Excellent. Badge, ID, and gun, please. She held out her hand. He looked down at his borrowed sweats. They're in my jacket pocket, and the gun is my own, not the department's. It's registered, and I'm qualified to use it. You can check my personnel file, which I see is conveniently sitting on your desk. Then turn in your badge and ID to security on your way out the door. You're dismissed. Chapter 32 Shopping for a new cell phone added another layer of misery to an already wretched day. But he needed one ASAP. Pete might be trying to call. Brennan fidgeted in front of the counter. All he wanted was to get in, get out, and get home. But transferring the phone number, contacts, and photos, which fortunately he'd saved to the cloud, took what seemed like forever, considering he was starving, upset, and wearing someone else's pants. The lost texts were an even bigger headache. Since he was no longer in possession of his phone, he'd had to retrieve them from the mobile company's server. But the companies didn't want to be bothered every time some ass had drowned his phone in a pool, so the request often required an incentive, like a subpoena. The long-haired dude behind the counter fed him the hard sell while programming Brandon's new phone, offering everything from a family plan to a 5G upgrade. If Brandon still had his badge, he'd have shoved it in the guy's face and arrested him for being boring. The blabber would stop, guaranteed. By the time the torturous encounter ended, darkness blanketed the city. Mumbling like a madman in his sweats and fancy wool blazer, he swung by the closest Wawa for a meatball hoagie and some beer. When he finally arrived at his apartment building, he pulled into his designated spot in the parking garage, cut the engine, and just sat. He and Elle used to do this sometimes. She'd sit on his lap and stare out the windshield into the darkness, patiently waiting for the bat colony to awaken from slumber and take flight. The first bat earned a squeal of delight, her chubby hands clapping as it swooped through the air to sample the hapless moths drawn to the overhead lights. Tonight the air was still, too cold perhaps for insects tasty enough to entice the bats from their warm lair near the ceiling. Brennan crammed his tattered dress shirt and pants into the plastic grocery bag with his hoagie. Six-pack in one hand and bag in the other, he tucked his chin against the bitter cold and trudged toward the elevator. A tire squealed. 
The noise echoed around the concrete box of a garage masking its origin. The bats stirred. Brandon froze in the middle of the underground lot. The quiet returned, broken only by the low rumble of an idling engine. He took a step. Headlights rounded the corner at an ungodly speed. An engine roared. Acutely aware of his vulnerable position, he dashed toward the closest parked car and crouched behind the hood. If this was one of his neighbors, he was going to look like an idiot. But if not, better safe than sorry. Bullet holes would be a lousy end to a lousy day. The station wagon shuddered to a halt exactly where he'd been standing. He peeked around his makeshift shield. No wonder the tires squealed. They were balder than Mr. Clean. Based on the Dotson's rust, dents, and scratches, the poor thing had been abused since the 70s. The driver's window rolled down. Brandon quietly set the six-pack on the ground and drew his gun from its holster. A baseball cap appeared first, then the head, chin tucked to obscure the face. Next, a black quilted jacket with the collar rolled high. Finally, a voice, husky and low, but unmistakably female and familiar. Do the security cameras work in this dump? He had no idea. They sure do. Then get in before somebody sees me. The driver lifted her chin, allowing the overhead light to chase the shadows from her face. No, ma'am. Besides, security camera footage can be altered. You know that better than I. In fact, I believe you're counting on it. We need to talk without prying eyes or ears. You come to me. Captain Mattern grumbled something he assumed was a profanity and threw the Dotson in reverse, expertly backing it into the nearest open spot. Her window closed. The door opened. She pulled the baseball cap low on her forehead, hunched her shoulders, and got out, leaving the door ajar. Brandon clicked his gun safety to the off position with his thumb. She stopped in her tracks. For God's sake, Brandon. Anyone else in the car with you? Do you really think Beck's men would be caught dead in a junker like that? She had a point. Where'd you get it? I borrowed it from Impound. Glad to hear it's not yours. Open the back door. She cussed aloud this time and flung the door wide. The Dotson was empty. Satisfied, now will you get in? Only if you toss me the keys. She flung the keys directly at his chest. They bounced off and hit the concrete with a clink. He stooped to retrieve them and cocked his head toward the open door. Ladies first. She climbed into the driver's side and slammed the door. The car shuddered and groaned. Keeping his eyes and gun trained on her face, he rounded the vehicle and slid into the passenger seat. You wanted to talk. Go ahead. Shoot. She cringed at his choice of words. He couldn't blame her. Bad puns at bad times. One of his worst faults. He never acted anxious. Years of on-the-job training and a smidge of therapy had taught him how to hide his nerves. The puns were his tell. Tom, his old partner, expected them. Hell, he looked forward to them. Said he found them endearing. Brandon wasn't sure Tom actually knew what that word meant. Captain Mattern twisted in her seat to stare him in the eyes. I understand your distrust, but as your senior officer, I'm ordering you to stand down. This conversation will go a hell of a lot better if you get your gun out of my face. The shadowy light of the garage accented the hollows of her face. Dressed in ratty jeans and a puffy jacket too large for her petite frame, she looked scruffy and haggard. If it weren't for her contentious attitude, he'd barely recognize the incisive, polished professional he knew her to be. He warily lowered his gun. Thank you, she sighed. 
My office is bugged. So is the coroner's. I'm sure you've figured that out already. He didn't respond, intentionally allowing the silence to drag. The borrowed vehicle, her disguise. She went to a lot of trouble for this little tete-a-tete. Like a felon seeking redemption, Captain Mattern had something she had to say. He was going to let her talk as long as her wicked heart desired. She slumped in her seat and stared out the chipped windshield. Last spring, Aaron Dolan McConnell opened the door for us to launch an investigation into Philly's entire Irish mob operation. All we had to do was walk through, which we did. Big time. Aaron knew Ryan was cheating, and between his expensive tastes and a pricey mistress, she got sick of him hemorrhaging money, her money. She cut him off, so he turned to his big brother Beck and fell deeper and deeper into debt. She was concerned where that might lead. How heroic. Brennan kept a firm grip on the gun resting in his lap. I wouldn't go that far. She wanted to protect the Dolan family's name and fortune, and as we all know, hell hath no fury. She let us install a tracker in her car, helped us clone his phone, and gave us access to the security system and cameras. We were in. The head of the organized crime unit assigned several of us to earn Beck's trust. You went undercover as a mob, Mole? I guess you could say that. Jim, myself, we let ourselves be bought by Beck and reported back to the OCU. Unfortunately, Jim launched a side gig, stealing and fencing evidence. He got greedy and careless. Beck noticed, and so did the OCU. I think Jim assumed one of us would protect him, but I couldn't, not without blowing my cover. When others outside the operation took notice, she lowered her gaze to the steering wheel. Something had to be done. By others, you mean Pete. Brennan rubbed his palm over his mouth and chin. Jesus Christ, I can fill in the blanks from there. I figured you could. Beck's goons, probably the same ones who threatened me at the hospital, killed Jim. I heard them laughing while I was in the stacks. They also left their calling card, a green handkerchief in the pool. But who ordered the hit, us or them? The captain remained stone-faced and silent. Did you kill Jim? Her voice carried no emotion. Everyone will soon learn that Jim had a drinking problem. Employee records will document that he showed up at the precinct visibly intoxicated on more than one occasion. His talk screen will show a mix of alcohol and downers similar to those noted in the nearly empty bottle at Amber Cervella's apartment. The official autopsy report will document he drowned while under the influence, an unfortunate accident. I doubt there will be any questions. I've got one for you. Despite his best efforts, his voice trembled with anger. Why me? You could have assigned any detective to Aaron's case. Why choose me? You were fresh off your daughter's death and Tom's before that. You were off your game. Also, you carry a lot of respect in the lower ranks and... Brennan snorted. Save it. Your first few words said it all. You thought I'd screw up. I was hoping if you declared Aaron's death a clear-cut accident, no one would question it. You forgot about Pete. He questions everything. It's his job. She shook her head slightly. I didn't forget about Pete. I just didn't plan on any unusual physical autopsy evidence like those burns. Without them, I doubt he would have worried so much about the benzos in her bloodstream. Socialites pop pills and fall. It's a common tragic story. The Hot Hands of Death. She'd paid attention to Pete's original autopsy report, the one that evaporated with his computer. They fell silent, their combined breath frosting the windshield and windows, cocooning them with their morbid thoughts. 
A huge black mass swooped out of the darkness. It swept in front of the windshield, blocking the overhead light, then disappeared. The captain jumped in her seat. What the hell was that? A bat, probably. Brandon tilted his head sideways to better peer through the window. The space near the ceiling was clear. That was too big to be a fucking bat. A crow, then. Whatever it was, it's gone now. Brandon's knuckles ached and his fingertips grew numb. He relaxed his grip on his gun. Can you see the irony here? The old man was right from day one. I called it on day two. Ryan killed Aaron for money. My report was dead on. He winced at his own bad pun. Not that it makes me feel any better. She sounds like she was the only semi-noble soul in this whole soulless mess. Captain Matter nodded. For what it's worth, I liked Aaron. I was... I was sorry to hear what happened. It wasn't part of the plan. Not mine, anyway. My plan and that of the OCU haven't always meshed. She gripped the steering wheel. Its cheap vinyl cover crackled in the cold. Ryan's mechanic discovered the tracker when the car was in for routine service. At first, he and Beck assumed it was Amber's doing, so they blew her brains out. This is the Irish mob we're talking about. They don't mess around with moles or disloyal wives. According to Ryan's tapped phone records, he and Aaron had one of their frequent fights, and she let slip some information only she could have known from the tracker. Beck told Ryan if he didn't do something about her, his men would, and it would be a lot less pleasant. So he drugged her, and she either fell down the stairs on her own, or someone helped. Your report says no one else was home except Leland Dolan. The security system corroborates it, but as you said, footage can be easily faked. We may never know the whole truth. Fortunately, Beck never traced the trail back to us. Otherwise, this whole elaborate scheme would have been for nothing. From where I'm sitting, it has been for nothing. Three people dead, my career teetering on destruction, and zero arrests. I'm set up to be a fall guy like Jim. No, because you get to live. Gee, that's mighty swell of you. Headlights flashed around the corner. An SUV zoomed past and parked in a spot five or six vehicles down. A car door slammed. Captain Mattern reached toward her hip. Brennan pushed her gun back in its holster. Steady. Rapid footsteps clacked across the concrete. Shrill laughter pierced the air. Cell phone to her multi-pierced ear, a thin woman in a fur jacket and rhinestone-crusted ball cap strode toward the elevator. Her animated conversation faltered when she skirted past the Dotson and spied the captain's brown face and ratted clothing through the windshield. She picked up her pace, skipped the elevator, and ran into the stairwell. The captain scowled. Do you recognize her? Relax. She lives here. I've seen her a few times. Name is Karen, I think. Figures. She clenched her jaw. Back to you and your career. You'll both be fine if you allow things to play out according to my plan. I know you think I'm a terrible person. Frankly, I don't care. But we're days, maybe weeks away from having enough evidence to bust Beck McConnell and his cronies. A clean sweep and the entire Irish mob organization will fall. And then they'll reorganize. There's always someone willing to fill that power void. True, but by that time, it won't be my problem anymore. Are you talking about a promotion? The blood rushed to his head. The surge of red-hot anger chased the winter chill away. Are you kidding me? Jim and Aaron died so you can get a fucking promotion? Of course not. They died so the Philadelphia Police Department can take down a brutal organized crime network that's been terrorizing our great city for over a decade. 
You're so full of shit. How can you expect me to believe a word you just said after spouting garbage like that? He reached for the door. She grabbed his forearm. Listen to me. Do your part and stand down. I know you don't want to. I can see you don't plan to either. Your attitude tells me that for some reason, you can't let this one go. But you have to. You want attitude? I'll give you. Once we do our sweep and Bex in custody, you'll have your due. I promise. I'll call off the troopers and internal affairs. Everyone will know you are right. Do it for your brothers in blue and all their hard work on this case. Do it for the city. And do it for myself, because if I don't, I'm going down for Jim's death. Is that right? The captain flashed a cheerless smile. I'm glad you understand. Chapter 33 His beer was warm and his meatballs were cold. Brennan threw the six-pack in the fridge and sat with his elbows on the kitchen table and his head in his hands. It was his move. The captain made that clear, but his options were limited and each held a downside, like death. He unwrapped his soggy hoagie, popped it in the microwave, and watched marinara bubble onto the plate. Usually, the comforting aroma of too much garlic melted the day's stress like mozzarella on a meatball. Not today. The decisions he'd make over dinner would impact the rest of his life, especially how much of it remained. He couldn't stay in the department. His career was over, no matter what the captain said. Sure, she could clear him of wrongdoing in Jim's death. The rumors would stop circulating eventually, but the whispers, the sidelong glances, those would never fade. He imagined facing Tan every day at the office, her desk an arm's length from his. The thought made his stomach churn. The microwave dinged. He ignored it, his appetite gone. He opened the fridge, closed it again, and paced. He never planned a second act, always assumed he'd retire in his fifties with a wife and a daughter in college, and maybe even a grandbaby on the horizon. He wasn't qualified to do anything but law enforcement. With Julie and Elle out of the picture, the precinct was his world. He had no hobbies, few friends. Shit. Panic bubbled in his chest, constricting his breath. He stopped pacing, closed his eyes, and inhaled through his nose. Breathe in, breathe out like the therapist taught you. Go to your happy place. And if all else fails, warm beer is better than none. An overwhelming urge to run aborted his relaxation attempts. He stripped off his borrowed clothes and hopped in the shower, scrubbing his skin to a rosy glow. The bathroom filled with steam, but he lingered, hot water streaming down his face and tried to imagine what his daughter, with her simple wisdom of childhood, would advise him to do. A glimmer of suppressed hope rose to the surface. Maybe there's a way to find out. He closed his eyes, but her tiny voice failed to penetrate the chaos of his churning thoughts, and the urge to escape remained. When the water ran cold, he toweled himself dry and dressed in street clothes, not sure where he was going, but certain he couldn't stay there. He could start over somewhere, become a private investigator like Philip Marlowe from those pulp noir books his pop adored. He'd have to drink more booze. No way in hell he was moving to Hollywood, though. Vegas held some attraction. His sister lived there, but then who had put flowers on Elle's grave? No, Philly was his home. Like her friend and frequent visitor, the Crow, the city was his connection to Elle. The places they'd gone together, like the library, the hospital, the cemetery, every city block held a memory. 
combined, they whispered to him day and night, reminding him of the purest love he'd ever known. Without them, what would he have? Just a bunch of photos. And photos can't talk. Not for him. He grabbed the leather attache from where he'd dropped it on the kitchen floor, ran out the door, and jogged down the 13 flights to the garage. The urgent cadence of his footsteps echoed throughout the subterranean chamber. The bats stirred. Shoulders hunched, he warily eyed the dark corners and shifting shadows. The bats, fallen leaves, tornadoes of paper and garbage. Every twitch was a potential predator, and as he crossed the wide expanse of concrete to get to his car, he was easy prey. He slammed the door tight and clicked the lock. While the engine warmed, he texted Cassie. Call me if you can. His phone rang within seconds. Don't you know we young people hate talking on the phone? That's what text messages are for. I know, but this is important. Everything okay? How should he answer that? No, your mother was a mob mole, and I've been framed for killing a co-worker, and I'm about to lose everything, including my mind? Yeah, sure, but I need every last bit of evidence you have on those six cold cases you solved on your own. You asked me to work with the department to bring their killers to justice. I have to do it tomorrow. You have to or you want to? I have to. If I don't do it then, it won't happen at all. Okay. She sounded puzzled. He couldn't blame her. You still there? Yeah, just thinking. You, um, you still have the folders, I think. All of them. The six cases I solved and the four I didn't. I just have the original photos from the wall and a few other notes if you want to swing by and pick them up. Is your father home? Yes. He filed a restraining order against me. Oh, figures. He sucks. Okay, how about this? Meet me in the backyard. I'll unlock the iron gate. Follow the gravel path to the patio. There's a bench under the pergola near the armillary. I'll bring my notes and wait for you there. Are you able to deactivate the security cameras? Of course. She paused. What's going on, detective? I'll tell you when I get there. Give me a good half hour. Friday night traffic stinks. He disconnected the cull and threw the car into gear. He wasn't sure he'd recognize an armillary if he tripped over one. Or a pergola, for that matter. He'd figure it out when he got there. Brennan parked several blocks away and approached Dolan Mansion from the rear. The neighborhood's rewired gas lamps were stately but dim. Unfortunately, the moon shone full and last night's storm clouds had dissipated just when he could have used their cover the most. A choppy layer of ice and snow remained. It glistened like shards of glass in the moonlight and rendered the worn cobblestone streets slicker than a bloody blade. Feeling more like a cat thief than a cop, he stepped carefully, hugging the red brick house's shadowy corners. When he thought he'd reached the proper location, he cocked his head and pulled out his phone to confirm the address. Yep, this was it. The moonlight must be hampering his sense of direction. Dolan Mansion loomed behind an eight-foot-tall wrought-iron fence topped with jagged spikes that would make Vlad the Impaler swoon in fear. Perhaps it was Brennan's mood or the darkness, but the building looked different from the rear. Instead of the street-facing entrance's gracious facade, odd angles and sharp corners jutted threateningly, and a service entrance offered bland passage. Light glass windows on three different stories glowed from within, casting pale yellow and red light onto the brick patio below. 
The yard was small but immaculate, every inch manicured into a three-foot-tall boxwood maze that began at the semicircular patio and ended at the iron gate. Brennan shook his head. Cassie left out the maze part. He'd have to find his way through in the dark. Guess the Dolans didn't want to bother mowing a lawn. The iron gate swung silently open with the slightest touch of his palm. He sighed with relief. She'd remembered to unlock the gate. Maybe she'd left a trail of breadcrumbs, too. Worst case scenario, he'd have to jump the rows. At least they were low enough, though probably prickly. Left, left, right. That wasn't so hard even without using his flashlight app. He made it to the center of the maze where a trio of shrub roses, their thorny branches bereft of petals, shivered in the stiff breeze. He scanned the second half of the low maze and planned his passage. Right, left, left. A neighbor's dog howled at the moon or something else. The hedge rustled and parted. A furry creature scurried across the gravel path in front of his foot. He jerked backward and tripped over a stone. Off balance, he succumbed to gravity and dropped to one knee. His hand automatically went to his holster. With another frantic disturbance of branches, the creature broke free of the hedge and disappeared under the iron fence into the alley. Amber eyes stared unblinkingly at him from behind a stack of wooden pallets. Brandon exhaled and slowly rose to his feet. He damned near pulled his gun on a cat. He waited for his heart to stop racing, then resumed tracing a path toward the house. Two false turns and multiple expletives later, he exited the maze onto the patio. A latticework grid heavily intertwined with tangled grapevine covered the brick courtyard. In the center, a hollow bronze sphere surrounded by multiple rings rested on a stone pedestal. The armillary, no doubt. Fancy. He'd ask Siri about it during his drive home. As promised, a bench with ironwork similar to the gate sat a few feet away. But Cassie was nowhere to be found. He brushed the light layer of snow off its hard surface, sat and jumped back to his feet. Shit, that sucker was cold. Now you know why I changed my mind. A hushed voice floated out of the shadows. About waiting for you on the bench, I mean. Cassie bundled in a traditional Irish cape and scarf, stepped from beneath the eaves. Her moonlit face glowed translucent against the deep green of her scarf, which fluttered around her chin in the stiff breeze. If not for the soft click of her boots against the patio's frozen brick, Brennan could have easily believed she had no substance at all, just an ethereal, armless shroud strolling daintily under a full moon. An arm poked from beneath the cape's heavy folds. This should have everything you need. Her gloved hand held out a folder for him to claim. There's not much, just a few extra bits of information I managed to gather together from older files. He accepted the file with both hands and stared silently at its plain manila surface. Her arm disappeared under the cape. Were you expecting something else? She looked over her shoulder, no doubt eager to return to the warmth of one of the mansion's many fireplaces. He opened the attache, shoved the folder inside, and pulled out the four cold case files, the ones she claimed she couldn't solve. I keep forgetting to return these to you. Thanks. Another pause ensued. And, she prodded. He took a deep breath. Your mother's murder had nothing to do with your dad's affair. She was a spy, feeding the police evidence about your Uncle Beck's mob operation. It was a dangerous mission, and they killed her for it. Her eyes widened. My mother was working for the police? Not working. She volunteered. 
Like you solving these cold cases, she did it because it was the right thing to do, and because she was worried about you. That might have been a stretch. Aaron did it because Ryan was a lying, cheating, spendthrift son of a bitch. But what the hell? Aaron Dolan deserved something for her sacrifice. If he could deliver her daughter's respect, that had to count for something. A solitary tear landed on the weathered brick, melting its skim of snow. Cassie took a shuddering breath. I had no clue. Zero. And I'm supposed to be super observant. I should have realized what was happening. And on what? I'm sure your mother took every precaution, shielding you from what was happening as best she could. There was nothing you could do. I could have told Pap. She shivered. He'll be furious when he finds out. He already hates my father's family and has for a long time since before I was born. This will mean war. Which is presumably why your mother didn't tell him herself, and why I'm debating whether we should either. Wars are ugly and the risk of collateral damage is too high. He handed her a crumpled but clean hanky from his pocket. And by collateral damage, I mean you. She loved you, Cassie. The evidence stands for itself. He waited until the sniffling stopped, and she wiped her damp cheeks. Why don't you ask her yourself? She froze with the hanky wadded tightly in her hand. What do you mean? I'm sure you have dozens of family photos. It doesn't work that way. She stared at her brown leather boots. Then tell me, how does it work? I... I don't know. What I do... It's unnatural. Some photos never speak. Some chatter constantly, or did before I learned to control them. Their voices are always yammering in my head, asking for help. They're loudest here in the mansion, especially in the photo room. Sometimes Ruth drowns them out. Some talk for a while and then suddenly stop, as if they'd said what they needed to say and are finally at peace. I like to think they've gone somewhere better than this, better than here. Brandon chewed on his lower lip and scraped his shoe over the moss-covered brick. Slowly, he reached into the attaché and withdrew the page he'd torn from Julia's carefully curated photo book. His breath caught at the sight of his daughter, chocolate ice cream smeared on her thin cheeks, and Tiara teetering precariously, wrapped in his arms on a perfect day. The photo trembled as he held it in front of Cassie's pale face. I want to talk to El. Cassie gently removed the page from his grip. Her fingers skimmed across its glossy surface as if she were stroking Elle's cheeks. A sad smile flitted across her face. I knew you'd ask eventually. Brennan shifted his weight. You met her at the library. You've visited her grave. You've talked to her already in some way or form. I need to know what she said, what she's told you. He looked at the ground. About me. She opened her mouth to speak. He held up his hand. Don't try to deny it. I know you were at the cemetery. You, the crow, and that damned yellow cat. It's bizarre. I don't understand it, the strange connection, but can you at least tell me... He cleared his throat. Can you at least tell me if she's still here? I think she's trying to tell me something, but I don't know what it could be. She turned her face to stare at the bronze armillary, its surface aglow with moonlit frost glittering like turbinado sugar on a red velvet cake. He looked up at the clear night sky and shook his head. This is crazy. I'm crazy. The pergola's grapevine roof rustled. A bird took flight, its wings a dark silhouette against the brightness of the moon. It cawed, triggering another howl from the neighbor's dog. Brennan jumped. Cassie did not. 
The voluminous folds of her cape masked any movement beyond the slight tremble of her gloved hand. If not for the sound of her shallow, rapid breaths, she could have been a marble statue, a lawn ornament like the armillary, meant for prestige, not purpose. He touched her shoulder. Are you okay? She didn't respond. Maybe you should go inside. He reached for Elle's photo. Forget it. We're done here anyway. It's too cold to be standing around. She says her hair grew back. It's long now and black like her crows. She's pretty again and nothing hurts anymore, so you shouldn't worry. What? He whispered, his chest tightened. Cassie's voice rose an octave higher. Her pupils already wide from the dim light dilated into shimmering pools of the deepest black, their glassy surface concealing mysteries only she could see. She's always with you, watching, because she knows you're not ready to let go. She wants you to be happy again. She says you look sad and you need to stop it. The photo slipped from her fingers and fluttered to the ground. He snatched it off the brick before the dampness could soak through. How? Ask her how. How do I stop it? Brennan crumpled onto the iron bench and buried his face in his hands. Tell her I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I gave up too soon. I let her die. I should have done more. The squeezing in his chest intensified, and he gasped for air, struggling to keep his heart from breaking into a million tiny pieces. When he looked up, Cassie's entire body was shaking. Her face glowed in the moonlight. She smiled at him, but the smile wasn't hers. She touched his cheek. You did everything, Daddy. Everything. The smile vanished, replaced by confusion. Arms outstretched, she stumbled into the darkness, swaying on her feet. He pictured her on the day they'd first met, her head slamming rhythmically against the cobblestone street as the paramedic stowed her mother's body into the ambulance. Cassie, Cassie, sit down. He guided her to the bench by the shoulders. Look at me, focus on my voice. Through a film of tears, he watched her try. Her eyes struggled to find his, and her mouth strained to form words. I can't, she whispered. I can only hear hers. For the next 20 minutes, Brennan sat next to Cassie and cried, holding her hand as she alternated between lucidity and catatonia. She whispered and rocked on the cold bench, the rhythmic motion seeming to soothe her agitation. Twice, when the shaking intensified, he wiped his eyes and pulled out his phone, intent on dialing 911. He'd have one hell of a time explaining his presence in Dolan's backyard, but that was a problem for another day. He'd think of something. She batted his hand down and reached into a hidden pocket in the lining of her cape to produce a small pillbox, dry swallowing its contents in a single gulp. The shaking subsided. By the time her seizure, or whatever the hell this was, broke, his emotions were as numb as his frozen ass. She stood abruptly and held out her hand. Could I have that picture back, please? I'd like to hang it on the wall in the photo room. Sometimes, sometimes it works better there. Ruth helps. She makes me stronger, I think. He blinked at the rapid transformation. What just happened? I talked to Elle. That's what you wanted, right? With an impatient wave, she brushed a stray lock of hair off her forehead. Did you expect it to be prim and pretty like we were sitting down to tea? He shook his head more out of bewilderment than as an answer to her question. Although Elle did love tea parties, the fancier the better. She rubbed her forehead. Sorry. 
Sometimes I don't feel well afterward. Bitchy, a little confused, postictal. I think I explained that word to you before. The extra meds don't help my mood either. She glanced over her shoulder at the firelight flickering behind the third story windows. I should probably go inside. I agree, before you freeze to death or someone misses you. Not super likely, but a warm bed would feel nice. She grasped the corner of Elle's picture and waited for him to let her go. He forced his fingers to relax and slowly lowered his arm. You said you could only hear hers. Did you mean Ruth's voice or Elle's? Cassie silently tucked the photo inside her cape. He thrust his hands into his pockets and then took them out again. I can't believe what I'm about to say. He blurted the rest in one long breath. Whether she's real or make-believe, I don't want Ruth talking to my baby. Cassie raised her brows. You and I have no control over anything that happens outside this realm, detective. You can't protect her there. I know. Anxiety thawed his numb emotions and the hollowness in his heart filled with tension. That's why I'm worried. Ruth was a horrible human being. As a matter of fact, she and I should have a conversation. Tell her she's next. Ruth was not a horrible person. She had a tough life and marriage was the only way out. The world was different for women then. She did what she had to do. Are you justifying four counts of premeditated murder? No, I'm pointing out that most people are not all bad. Everyone has at least one redeeming virtue. Except maybe Paul. He's a monster through and through. She paused. If it helps, Ruth can't hurt her. Not anymore. And Ruth won't talk to anyone but me. Are you 100% sure about that? Yes. Fine. He thrust his cold hands back into his pockets. Keep the photo for now. I want it back tomorrow. I plan to spend a night typing your research into police reports. I'll turn them in your case files over to my boss first thing in the morning. Afterward, I thought we could tell your pap that your mother's case is officially closed together. Will your father be home? He usually golfs Saturday mornings if the weather's warm enough. If not, he goes to the gym. Perfect. Either will work. As long as he's not home when we arrive. You want to meet me at the library at ten? Sure. When will you be arresting my father and Uncle Beck? I won't. And I can't tell you why. I don't have enough evidence. Cassie couldn't know about the upcoming sting operation. He prayed he hadn't told her too much already. One little slip of the tongue and she'd end up buried alongside her mother. Cassie balled her fists by her sides. But you said my mother collected the evidence for you. She did your job and died for it. You're letting them get away with murder. She stepped closer. Now I get it. I know why you want to turn in those six cold cases I solved. They're my consolation prize, a pat on the back for a job well done. Her shrill voice carried in the cold, dry air. The neighbor's dog howled in response. Brennan glanced at the shifting shadows beyond the gate. The amber-eyed cat was gone, spooked, perhaps, by the dog's barking or Cassie's anger. It's not over yet. It only looks that way. I said I couldn't arrest them. I, singular. I can't. In your journal, you said your pap trusts me, and so do you. Now, more than ever, I need you to hold that thought close. Justice will be served in the end, I promise. He inwardly cringed. He sounded like the captain. She glared at him with an expression eerily similar to one he'd seen somewhere before. It hit him like a lead slug. Her pap's old black-and-white mugshot. Resemblance was chilling. The fury faded into icy composure. She shrugged and turned away. 
I can tell you exactly what my pap will say to that detective. What? You can do better, son. That's simply not going to do. Thanks to that old police file, Leland Dolan is looking more and more like a serial killer. How has he stayed hidden for so long? And we finally learned the captain's endgame. Or have we? Stay tuned. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen to The Photo Thief now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on CamCat Unwrapped, a serialized podcast. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also, check out our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books, including interviews with the authors, editors, and other industry professionals. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.